1: The History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan.
0: And Cassidy Zachary. Dress listeners, as you may well already know, I am embarking on maternity leave for the next
1: month. (laughs) Congratulations, Cass. Thank you. And just so our dress listeners know, when Cass first told me that she was pregnant, I just started calling the baby, baby paray. (laughs) <laughs> because I'm a huge dork. Um, but um, I think Cass, after baby arrives, will probably announce it on the show as to what our our name actually is, which is not Paray. right.
0: Yes, exactly. And of course, we're pre-recording these episodes, so he has not yet made his arrival in this world. But yes. if you're hearing this episode, hopefully he has arrived. <laughs> mm-hmm. So needless to say, we are going to be alternating new episodes with some of our favorites from the Dressed Archival Wardrobe, which April consists of 300 plus episodes.
1: I think it's like close to 350 at this point, something like that. If you count like the full length episodes plus the mini and the fashion history mysteries and all of that, yeah, there's there's a lot there. I, I, yeah. I was I was a little stunned the other day when I went back and looked to see how many we had made.
0: Yeah, I mean, I keep forgetting about episodes we actually wrote. So there's some fun ones in there, dress listeners.
1: Cass, there are so many amazingly fun and enlightening episodes that we have done in the past that I have completely forgotten about. Um, Maybe some of our listeners have as well, or maybe they just haven't traveled back that far into our archive. We have done episodes on everything from the history of polka dots and flip-flops all the way into 19th century etiquette practices, which was One of my favorite episodes. We've also talked about the history of fishnet stockings and stretchy jeans. It has been quite the ride. And we just want to say there are so many more episodes to come. For sure.
0: But for today's episode, we are heading back to our very first season in 2018, four years ago, actually, and what was only our 12th episode ever. Today, we're revisiting our episode on the complex and controversial history of the 19th century fashion trend for so-called cashmere shawls. So before being knocked off at all price points, these highly coveted luxury goods were originally imported from the cashmere region, created by master weavers and artisans who continue their craft this very day. So dress listeners, we really hope you enjoy this journey back into fashion history and into the Dressed Archives. So my deep nosedive into today's topic actually extends back to 2012 and a job I was fortunate enough to get fresh out of grad school. And that's actually right around the time April and I had actually just
1: first met. I can't believe that was six years ago. That that's crazy. Time flies. I know. Time flies when you have your face buried in a fashion magazine. Yeah. <laughs> and April and I are both
0: graduates from the same master's program at a uh, Fashion and Museum Studies at the Fashion Institute of Technology, but we graduated different years. And while I was in school, I was an intern in the Special Collections Department of the school's library, and that's where April actually currently works as a curator of manuscripts. But you didn't work there yet, right?
1: Nope, I didn't. I was just there doing research um, for my first book, uh, Fashion Plates, 150 Years of Style. Basically, I was there, like, taking thousands of photographs. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah,
0: and I was so enamored with what you were doing that I actually ended up becoming your research assistant.
1: True. True. So all of this is probably not very surprising to our listeners that we bonded over our love of fashion history. It was love at first, fashion
0: plate. (laughs) (laughs) So after grad school and my oh-so-fortuitous meeting with one April Callahan, I was fortunate enough to be given this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, and it was cataloging a private collection of historic textiles and clothing, and I got to do it in my home state of New Mexico.
1: I have to say, I was always very jealous about, like, you'd text me things like, look, I found this thing today. And you'd like send me a photo.
0: I know. It was pretty amazing. (laughs) It was really amazing. And this collection ended up being over 10,000 pieces. And it was from all over the world. So Japan, China, Europe, various countries in Africa, the list goes on. So every day was like Christmas as my assistants and I opened box after box and we never knew what we were going to get. So one day, we could be photographing an 18th-century Mantua made out of 17th-century Chinese silk. Another day, a 19th-century hand-painted Japanese man's hiori. And on many, many occasions, I came across what I instantly recognized as a cashmere shawl.
1: Well, that makes perfect sense that you would recognize it immediately because you are fresh out of school. And um, anybody who is really into 19th-century fashion knows that these cashmere shawls were omnipresent as a fashion accessory. They were immortalized in numerous paintings and portraits for hundreds of years, really. And they enjoyed the tip top of their popularity from the late 18th century all the way to around sometime around 1870. And these cashmere shawls that you're referring to, they were distinguished by their soft cashmere wool and their so-called paisley motif. But that's... That's a little bit of a tricky term that we're going to get into as we go into the episode.
0: Yeah, we'll go into that a little bit more later. But April's referring to the familiar motif, also known in English as a pine cone, which resembles a teardrop with a bent tip. And in this collection, I came across many shawls. I think there were something like 20, probably more, that had this distinctive motif. But as I examined and compared them, I began to recognize huge differences between them. It was like night and day, actually. What I discovered is that some of the shawls were clearly printed or machine woven, while others were these masterpieces of hand craftsmanship and exceptional quality. These shawls were a world apart. They were clearly hand woven. In some cases, they were hand embroidered, and they were all made of the softest wool. And it got me really curious how did two such polarizing examples of the same type of shawl? come to exist in this world.
1: Um, What it sounds like to me is that you kind of stumbled upon the fate of many coveted luxury goods throughout history, you know, something that designers are still trying to battle, the all consummating knockoff.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, indeed I did. And But in the case of the cashmere shawl in the 19th century, this was not one designer, but an entire industry of weavers that were being copied at all price points. And as I soon discovered, the reason for the polarizing differences between these shawls was more than just a difference in quality and constructions. It was a difference between cashmere and cashmere. As promised, today we are discussing the controversial history of a shawl. Cashmere with a K to be exact.
1: So, in the late 18th and early 19th century, Cashmere shawls were coveted symbols of European luxury and high fashion before technological advances made them available en masse. They enjoyed popularity for the better part of 80 years, and they were worn by women across the economic spectrum, really kind of these prized and valued accessories, Um, and they were were covered extensively in fashion magazines. They were celebrated in novels and books, and there was a sort of of, um, a romanticized ideal about these shawls that was part of the popular imagination during the 19th century. The history of one of the most ubiquitous fashion trends of this era, however, is actually far from romantic. In fact, it reveals itself to be a story driven by the all-too-familiar tale of greed, power, and cultural appropriation. You know, casts everything that goes (laughs) hand-in-hand with colonialist aspirations. Yep. So um, the origins of the Kashmir shawl, they were not European at all. They were Kashmiri. Kind of making the connection now. (laughs) Yeah, so listeners, if you're
0: having an aha moment right now, you're not alone. What you and I and April might know today as Kashmir, C-A-S-H-M-E-R-E, is in fact the anglicized version of Kashmir, K-A-S-H-M-I-R, a region bordering clockwise from left Pakistan, Afghanistan, Tajikistan, China, Tibet, and India. So today Kashmir consists of Indian, Pakistani, and Chinese-administered territories. So integral has outside rule been to the history of Kashmir that scholars have divided its history of Shah production into four periods based on who was ruling at the time. So you have the Mughal period of 1586 to 1753, followed by Afghan rule from 1753 to 1819, the Sikh period of 1819 to 1846, and the Dogra period of 1846 to 1877.
1: Shawl production in Kashmir is thought to have begun in either late 15th or early 16th centuries, but it wasn't until the end of the 16th century that the industry really began to prosper and flourish. And this was thanks in no small part to the patronage and the support of the Mughal Emperor Akbar, who had come into power sometime around 1586. During his 19-year reign, Akbar took a great interest in the arts, and his pride for these finely woven shawls of the region was so great that he invested personal interest in promoting them. He created and oversaw imperial workshops in three different cities in his country, and he also made a pair of cashmere shawls an indispensable part of the important kilat or quote-unquote robe of honors ceremony. During this ceremony, allies of the empire were gifted luxurious sets of clothing that included a turban, a long coat, a gown, a fitted jacket, sash, trousers, shirt, and, as we have already mentioned, Not one, but two of these shawls. So any or all of these pieces given in the kilat ceremony, they could, all of them, be made from the finest pashmina.
0: Yeah, and I would just like to point out that the word shawl itself comes from the Persian word shawl, S-H-A-L, a word which denotes not a specific article of dress per se, but a class of woven wool fabrics that could also include the rectangular or square piece of fabric that you and I associate with the word shawl today. The garment we know as a shawl is originally thought to have been brought from Persia to India, where it became a wardrobe staple across all echelons of society.
1: And these cashmere shawls, they employed silk or other types of wool and fibers in their makeup, but they were considered at their finest when they were made of the softest and most refined of wools, known as Pasham, or pashmina, the Kashmiri and Persian word for soft hair. This wool was sourced from the underbelly of domesticated mountain goats found in the mountain regions of Tibet and Central Asia. And these particular goats, they have two kinds of fur. Um, they have a thicker outer coat with coarser hair and then an undercoat with much, much softer, finer hair and this inner coat helps them keep warm during the winter in these high altitudes where they live but once spring comes they shed it and these goats get rid of this this undercoat by rubbing in against rocks and such it was then collected and sold by the locals of the region to Kashmiri who sorted it and spun it into yarn on a spinning wheel so it's only much later after these shawls became coveted commodities in Europe that both this type of shawl and the soft goat wool which it used became known as cashmere with a C, the anglicized spelling of the region from which, you know, the shawls came.
0: Floral decoration was a staple on the cashmere shawls from the very beginning. At first, any ornamental flourish was reserved to the borders, a typical example being a row of flowers and plants, quite simple in their depiction, and about a foot in height but this gradually gave way to small pieces of flora being confined within a more complex shape. And by the late 1700s, this shape resembled the familiar bent teardrop. Today, what Americans and Canadians refer to as, quote-unquote, paisley, now a universally recognized motif goes by a myriad of other
1: names around the world. We previously mentioned that paisley is known as pine or cone, but it's also known as by other terms, which include palm or palmette. In Central Asia, it's known as a bodum, or almond, and in Kashmir, it's known as buta, meaning flower in Hindi. The motif's origins are thought to originate in Persia, modern-day Iran, specifically from a city in its once vast empire, Babylon. Here it was known as bota, the Persian word meaning plant.
0: It was in the ancient city of Babylon modern-day Iraq that the boda is thought to have emerged from the teardrop shapes artists use to depict the leaves of the Tree of Life, a mythical, magical tree that grew in the center of paradise. So this motif then spread east from Babylon to Persia and finally to India and Kashmir when it became a staple design element of Kashmiri shawls from their inception.
1: The intricate hand-weaving technique known as kani represents the height of Kashmiri's skill and craftsmanship in shawl production— and the name Connie comes from the Kashmiri village Kanihama, which was a really big shawl production center
0: For you textile and sewing aficionados out there, Connie is a twill tapestry weave with a double weft interlock. So while the sorting and spinning of the wool was typically a job done by women, weavers were exclusively male, and they wove on a hand-operated shuttle type loom and created designs while looking at a pattern and using a series of spool that each contained a different colored thread. And apparently, Kashmiris could dye shawl wool up to 64 different tents. And an estimated 400 different spools of thread could be uh, required for just a simple shawl design, while a more complex pattern could require as many as 1,500.
1: Whoa, that's crazy. So clearly, this was an incredibly complex process. Um, And it involved a designer, but it also involved a lot of other people lending hands to this production. There was also a quote-unquote color collar, a pattern master, and also two or three men sitting together at the same loom, and they would all be working on the same shawl at the same time. So the actual technical process of how they did this is a little bit too complex for us to go into detail here, but if you would like more information about how this was actually done, you can check out Monique Levi-Strauss's book, Cashmere, with a C. Um, where she provides uh, a a much more in-depth description of of the technical aspects of this process. And she actually has some really beautiful pictures of very, very early cashmere shawls in her book as well.
0: Yeah, she really does. So this was quite a laborious and intricate process, as you can imagine. And the most luxurious of these shawls could take anywhere from 18 months to three years to make. Needless to say, these shawls were quite expensive and only enjoyed by the most affluent members of society, and not just the rich and royal of Kashmiri, but the wealthy across the entire Asian continent and even parts of Africa.
1: So, long before these Kashmiri shawls were enjoyed by fashionable ladies in Europe, they were luxury items coveted by the most wealthy women and men across Central Asia, China, Russia, and the vast Turkish Ottoman Empire. The shawls were exported from Kashmir via a sophisticated trade network that had been in existence since at least the 16th century. From its beginnings, Kashmiri shawl production was very much a state-supported, commercially-driven enterprise that was intended for both home and also international markets. So by the 17th century, that international market had extended to Britain. And we're gonna talk more about that after a word from our sponsors.
0: In the early 1600s, ships of the East India Company, later the British East India Company, landed in India with the intention of establishing trade relations with the Mughal emperors, then in power, under who ruled over both India and Kashmir. Some of their first imports into Britain were Indian hand-painted and printed cotton fabric known as chintz. And these cottons caused a sensation in the U.K. and became so popular that the government eventually banned them due to the threat they posed to the local textile industry. And it was a very similar story in France.
1: By the middle of the 18th century, however, the trading companies' roots in India had become firmly entrenched with the result that their trading settlements of Madras, Bombay, and Calcutta had developed into these quote-unquote presidency towns. And the company extended its sovereignty and and influence into this region. And these presidency towns were manifestations of not just the companies, but Britain's expanding colonialist presence in the country. And a presence that would only continue to grow and grow and grow. And I didn't know that that was the term for these towns, Cass, until you wrote this episode. So thank you for teaching me something. (gasps) It was during the 18th
0: century that Kashmiri shawls are first known to have made their way into Europe, brought back as gifts in the luggage of travelers, ambassadors, and traders returning from their trips abroad. So while also imported by the East India Company, high British taxes deterred them from being brought to the country in large numbers, and thus from becoming really a profitable commodity for the company.
1: However, some enterprising individuals found ways around these high taxes, with British women returning from India, smuggling these shawls under their clothing. And if this practice of dress smuggling sounds familiar... It's because we've already done a whole episode on it. (laughs) An episode with Hind Abdul-Jabbar, which is called Smuggled in the Bustle. Um, So if you haven't checked out that episode, please do so. It's great.
0: However, the Kashmiri shawls made their way to Europe, they gained many admirers among the upper echelons of European society by the end of the 18th century. And their appeal is really underscored, no doubt, by the romantic notions of the exotic far-off East that permeated the era. So women embraced these shawls pretty quickly as the perfect accessory for the white, high-waisted chemise gowns that in fashion. And because these shawls were rare, expensive, and thus incredibly exclusive, they quickly became a marker of class and wealth enjoyed by only the most affluent of
1: society. In France, the fashion trend for cashmere shawls was given a huge endorsement by the Empress Josephine Bonaparte. And she was given her very first shawl by her husband. Napoleon upon his return from the military campaign in Egypt. To say that Empress Josephine was obsessed with Cashmere shawls, casts, as you know, might be an <laughs> understatement. Just a tad. <laughs> she was completely nanners for these things. Um, you know, they were rare, they were exorbitantly expensive, and so they represented the height of luxury, so naturally, she had an entire closet full of them.
0: Yeah, she reportedly had 60 of these shawls, and some of which cost as much as 12,000 francs at the time. I I don't know how much that is today, but it sounds like a lot of money.
1: Well, yeah, if you're thinking, like, they're taking three years to make one, like, how much would it cost?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And there's actually this fantastic portrait of her by this painter, Baron Antoine Jean-Claude, from 1808. And not only is her red cashmere shawl so long that it has to be wrapped once around her waist before it cascades from her shoulder to the floor, but her dress that she's wearing is actually made from a cashmere shawl. So, complete with the large bodo motifs encompassing the entire bottom half of the skirt, Uh, this is just a wonderful example of, well, her obsession with cashmere shawls. (laughs) And this is just one of many portraits of her that feature her wearing this accessory. And she was not alone in her admiration of this type of shawl.
1: Before long, cashmere was inundated with more orders than they could actually support. Um, and, to the, and this kind of forced their hand to adapt some of their production methods to meet the demand. This included using more embroidery to achieve their signature design elements, because embroidery took like a third of the time that weaving those motifs into the actual shawl took.
0: Which is Fascinating to me because to me, embroidery is still an incredibly complex craftsmanship that craft that requires so much attention and time. Uh, so I can't even imagine. So, more and more rich women across Europe are wearing these exquisite, rare shawls from Kashmiri. And naturally, women who admired the fashion forward elite wanted to imitate them. But while Kashmiri weavers were not in the business of mass producing their shawls at low price points, European shawl manufacturers were more than willing to give it a try.
1: Of course they were. They wanted to make money. Um, In the early 1800s, the French began making, or I should say printing, imitation cashmere shawls. It was not until Napoleon's continental blockade of 1806 um, that prohibited these goods from entering France that the French textile manufacturers took up the cause in earnest. And remember, Napoleon was the first to introduce cashmere shawls to his wife. But apparently, he very quickly changed his tune because, no, 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 once they realized how popular they were, they realized that these imported shawls were actually a threat to France's economic stability. And I love the story, Cass. Um, Supposedly, at least on one occasion, he was so upset about Josephine wearing one of these imported shawls, which, you know, you're technically not supposed to have as a foreign-made accessory, that he actually took it off her and threw it in the fire which Whoa. is hilarious and a little bit <laughs> dramatic. <laughs> <laughs> dramatic? Maybe a little violent? I don't I don't, I don't know. <sighs> anyway, but needless to say, France began making these imitations of the cashmere shawls, but the country which was often so fashion forward, I'm talking about France, they were a little late to this knockoff party because other people were doing it before them. Whereas France had set the standard in luxury silk
0: textile production. It was the British who had a long history of producing woolen textiles and was thus better equipped, in theory, to mimic the cashmere shawl. And this was happening as early as the 1770s, years before the fashion craze had even started. Uh, British manufacturers began attempting to make imitations. This was first done in Norwich, one of the country's many established weaving cities, but this was soon followed by another city, manufacturers in Edinburgh, Scotland. However, it was another Scottish city whose name would become synonymous with Kashmiri shawl imitations, eclipsing any and all British rivals in their pursuit of the peace of the Kashmiri shawl market, Paisley, Scotland. Paisley's success in producing imitation Kashmiri shawls was phenomenal. And it was a factor of many not-so-nice practices like underpaying our staff and shocking, stealing designs. Something I find quite Ironic actually is that Norwick manufacturers were actually really upset with Paisley's success because they accused the manufacturers there of stealing their designs. And my question is, where exactly was Norwick stealing its designs? Of course, in some cases, these European manufacturers did actually go to cashmere and buy shawls to imitate.
1: Yeah, you know, this is kind of similar to the whole system of purchasing licensed copies of Haute couture garments to copy. That we've talked about in past episodes. Yeah. Right. So, but I, this is like institutionalized practice of just like copying other people's work.
0: Right. But I think it's safe to say that in most cases, Kashmiri artisans were simply not being paid for their designs.
1: So what you're saying is, is that Paisley is basically making knockoff versions of Norwich's knockoff versions of authentic Kashmiri shawls.
0: Correct. And <laughs> they are doing it really efficiently and cost-effectively, the incorporation of new weaving technologies, such as the harness and later the jacquard loom, helped Paisley to do something far better than its competitors, and that was the mass production of shawls on the cheap.
1: Yeah. So, where a genuine cashmere shawl could cost anywhere from seventy to three hundred pounds at the time, a shawl from Paisley cost twelve. Yep. So, All of a sudden, this very exclusive luxury item was being made affordable to more and more and more women. The rapid inundation of paisley shawls in the international and domestic markets meant that by the middle of the century, paisley cashmere shawls had simply become paisley shawls and the Persian bota, a paisley. Of course, the paisley was not
0: anymore a Persian bota than a paisley shawl was cashmerey, but in their pursuit of imitating cashmere shawls, European manufacturers inevitably put their own spin on cashmere designs. And no one had a greater impact on Kashmiri design than the French. So we previously mentioned that the Jacquard loom aided Paisley in speeding up the productions of shawls, but it was the French who invented the loom, and it was the French who exploited its full potential in the production of high-quality imitation shawls.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And the importance of the Jacquard loom into the history of textile production and the world really cannot be underscored enough. Uh, The Jacquard loom was first invented in France in 1804 by Joseph Marie Jacquard. And the loom made automated patterning possible for the first time. So all of a sudden, all these really complex patterns like brocades and damasks, which were once achieved by very slow, laborious, you know, manual techniques powered on a draw loom, they were now able to be produced at these super advanced, like, hyper speeds. And this was no small technological advancement. This is making it Cassidy and I doing this right now possible <laughs> because the punch cards that were used to control the sequence of the operations in the jacquard loom, these punch cards are really the forerunner to the technology that is used in the first computers. So yeah. once again, the intersection of fashion and technology, friends.
0: Yeah, and it's so interesting. And I've tried to grasp the concept of punch cards for so long. And there's actually a lot of... um videos on YouTube that you can check out to see exactly what this means. It's really fascinating. So the Jacquard loom opened this entirely new world of possibilities for textile and design manufacture in the early 19th century. So not only did it allow the French to efficiently copy and reproduce cashmere weaving techniques, the loom allowed the French to make more complex variations of the cashmere designs. So they expanded the bona motifs, Once confined to the borders on Kashmiri shawls, the French took it across the entire expanse of the shawl in a mishmash and furry of this really busy patterning. And in the most decided break from Kashmiri tradition, however, was the so-called harlequin shawl, which is basically a really distinctively French design. It included a border of different colored squares. So, while Paisley was mass-producing shawls, French manufacturers prided themselves on the quality, artistry, and originality of their, quote-unquote, cashmere designs.
1: And in this way, French cashmere, which became widely renowned, joined Paisley and other imitations in the market that was becoming increasingly saturated. High and low-quality European versions were now competing with, and in many cases, overshadowing the actual legitimate product itself, the real Mm -hmm. cashmere shawls. So, by 1818, paisley shawls were even competing with genuine cashmere shawls in markets not just in Europe and America, but also in Turkey, Persia, and India, where they were sold as, get this, (laughs) paisley cashmere. (laughs) So, wow, this is, like, incredibly complex. Yeah. (laughs) Um, but in response to the competition, the Kashmiri weavers were not only forced to compete with the very market that they had created, but they then had to adapt to European fashion trends to stay relevant. And they began adopting and creating some of these French designs um, or, or francophized versions of <laughs> cashmere yeah. designs to sell back to France and to yeah. sell back to Europe.
0: Uh, So to promote European imitations against the real deal, a common tactic by merchants and retailers was to advertise their knockoffs as authentic. Even though when you compare them like I have, it's night and day. Uh, Another popular narrative in books and newspapers was that the Kashmiri weaver, his craft, and his products were in comparison to European products. Uh, The Kashmiri shawls were outdated, outmoded, and even inferior. So, Kashmir might have created connie shawls, but it was the British and French who perfected them. So, at London's famous 1851 Crystal Palace exhibition, authentic Kashmiri shawls could be seen next to their quote-unquote perfect French versions. And an admirer of the latter wrote in a catalog on the exhibition about the French weaving technique, quote, Not earlier, however, than 1834 was the present process called spoulinet, which is the exact imitation of the Kashmirian so introduced for working intricate designs that one man with a jacquard loom can produce the excellence now attained in Paris. In fact, we find the true Indian shawl there, produced but perfected by the addition of machinery and sold at about a quarter of the cost.
1: By 1851, the imitation shawl market industry in France was worth 30 million francs, while imports from Kashmir were only worth 4 million. But remember, oh faithful customer, not only is the French version cheaper, it's perfect. So, if the French were making quote unquote true Indian shawls, what were the Kashmiris making?
0: Ah, yes, the all too familiar cycle of cultural appropriation seen time and time again, especially within the framework of British colonialism. And we will learn more about that after a word from our sponsors. So in 1812, the East India Company attempted to ship the Kashmiri goats, so valued for their fine fur, to England. This venture was headed by a veterinarian surgeon and superintendent of the company, and his name was William Moorcraft. And he's a man that it should be said, he possessed quite a genuine respect for the Kashmiri shawl artisans and believed Britain actually had a great deal to learn from them. Uh, He spent something like 10 years in the region studying their techniques and the craft uh, but this initial venture of his it just it failed miserably uh, he had shipped the male goats on one ship and the female goats on another ship and the ship's carrying the female goats was lost at sea and and the hundreds of surviving male goats that made it to english shores they perished shortly after landing there because they were unable to adjust to this incredibly new climate
1: okay that's that's sad i don't like sad animal tales I, I was always that kid in class who was, like, crying at the end of Old Yeller. <laughs> like, How could you sad not? Sad animal stories. Why do they do why do they do that to elementary kids? I don't understand. It's just mean.
0: I know. Well, if that makes you sad, you're definitely not going to like the next piece of the story. Because after the utter failing of importing goats, Moorcroft's next idea in the pursuit of perfecting the Kashmiri shawl was to import people. Writing in a letter in 1823, quote, but if It be a fact as reported that machinery cannot furnish your yarn as well adapted for the manufacturer's shawls as that spun by hand in Kashmir. Nothing would be more easy than to induce a few Kashmiri families to proceed to Britain on very light terms of remuneration to teach the craft of spinning wool into yarn to, quote, weakly and indigent females in Britain, on some presumption the art might be readily diffused, end
1: quote. Okay, that's like supremely messed up. I'm I'm, going to guess that these men felt it was, like, kind of like a a blessing and a gift. Oh, for sure they did. Brought. Mm Brought to England. (laughs) Um, You're so lucky. Um, And, you know, hey, let's just also at the same time help ourselves to your trade secrets. And, like, please teach our weekly women um, how to do this so we can entirely supplant your artistry for our own profit. Um, Pretty much. I'm just going to say perhaps women wouldn't be weakly or indigent if you gave them equal rights. So. There's that.
0: Um, oh, now you're just getting ahead of yourself, I April. I always get
1: ahead of myself. I'm, I'm once again angry. I'm angry on a podcast about fashion history. I know. Um, but 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 you know, ultimately, what this what this just proves is that fashion is so tied up in all of these other social and political aspects of society. And this, this specific case, you know, these these aspects of these really skewed international relations between the quote-unquote East and the quote-unquote West.
0: Yeah, and I mean, textiles and the textile industry in general, from the very beginning of Britain's colonialist interest in India was tied up in textiles. So it's really interesting when you look at it from that perspective. And as it turns out, Britain, or France for that matter, never even had to formally colonize Kashmir to take Full advantage of the region's shawl industry. So, in 1846, the British did defeat the Sikh rulers that were then in, power in Kashmir, but they allocated the region to a local ruler in exchange for the acknowledgment of British supremacy and an annual token of quote one horse, twelve shawl goats of approved breed, and three pairs of shawls end quote. By this time, Britain had no interest in the region's shawl industry. But why should they, April? They'd already appropriated it and turned a huge profit in their manufacture of imitation shawls.
1: Yeah. So, scholar Michelle Mesquiel, in her compelling essay, Consuming Cashmere, Shawls and Empires, 1500 to 2000, she presents the Cashmere shawl as this really eye opening case study into the common cycle that was employed by Europeans and Americans of quote appropriating and renaming of Asian. Handcrafted textiles for home markets. She goes on to say, quote, first, Europeans monopolize the collection of commodities in Asia and their transportation home. Second, Europeans manufacture substitutes, which copied the commodities from anywhere ranging from Chinese porcelain to cashmere shawls. Third, Europeans incorporated both the imports and their European-made copies into Western European and Euro-American. Fashion cycles for chinoiserie, orientalism, Japonisme, Indian style, and so, on,
0: end quote. and so on. And so on and so on. So on and so challenges. on. Yeah, Masquel challenges and criticizes traditional quote unquote Eurocentric fashion histories. that give way too much credit to the power of European consumption in creating the cashmere slash kashmiri shawl craze of the nineteenth century, and simultaneously grossly underestimate the significant role that British colonialism played in its creation and sustainment. So in other words, how real Kashmiri shawls were first appreciated and admired as romantic, exotic novelties before being transformed into a European, not Kashmiri commodity, bought and sold at all price points, after which it was finally discarded in favor of the next new and exciting foreign merchandise. And this is a cycle that we see repeated again and again and again.
1: Yeah, we would like to tell you that cultural appropriation is a thing of the past, but it's still very much alive and well today in the contemporary fashion industry. And (laughs) you don't have to look hard (laughs) to find it. Um, Just look at, you know, there's lots of debates that have come up in the last few years, um, you know, from the runway, whether it be the white Victoria's Secret models donning sacred Native American headdresses or non-Sikh Gucci models wearing Sikh turbans. You know, this controversy over just how fashion designers obtain their cultural inspirations is still very much an unfortunate reality of the industry today. And, and you know, artisans and indigenous people all over the world are demanding to be recognized as as more than just a passing fashion fad. And, you know, it, this is a really complex issue, I have to say. And I, I don't think that um, finding inspiration in some other culture's Beauty is bad. It's just about respect how you do and, it. and how you do it. Like, think about it. Think these things through,
0: people. Yeah, there's definitely a right and a, a wrong way. I think it was Valentino a couple years ago that collaborated directly with the artist Yeah, uh, to produce one of their collections. So Beautiful. The same cannot be said for the Kashmiri shawl, I'm afraid. While the Kashmiri now cashmere shawl fashion lasted for the better part of the 19th century— By the 1870s and 80s, demands for these shawls was in sharp decline. And scholars credit this with a multitude of factors. So the most popular, albeit Eurocentric, cause is that fashion simply changed. And with it, the European demand for these shawls was gone. And indeed, when the bustle silhouette replaced the wide crinoline skirts in the 1870s, the emphasis of a woman's dress moved to the back of the skirt. So women wanted to show off their behinds, not cover it with a long, cumbersome shawl.
1: But as Michelle Masquel points out, a change in European fashion is only one of the factors in the downturn of the cashmere shawl industry, and a very narrow one at that. Writing that the demise of the shawl industry was as much about decreased demand as it was to, quote, due to long-term imperial policies that both reduced elite resources to purchase luxury textiles and helped British and indigenous merchants supply British manufactured goods to compete with local textiles, end quote. So basically, uh, British imperial policy in India throughout the 19th century ensured that the power and wealth of indigenous rulers was greatly reduced, if not eliminated
0: entirely. This compounded with political uncertainty in Afghanistan, Iran, and other countries meant that the once booming Asian and Central Asian Kashmiri shawl trade, you know, non-European customers that still supported this industry, That, too, was in steady decline throughout the 19th century, thanks a lot to British imperial policy and other things. And at the same time that Britain was exerting its influence in the region, it did absolutely nothing to stimulate the local industry. Instead, it chose to imitate it solely for its own economic gain.
1: And the Franco-Prussian War of 1870 and 1871 further depressed the European demand for cashmere shawls, as did changes in fashion. Continued political instability in Kashmir and the 1878-1879 drought drove many shawl weavers out of the region. And it's it's a combined result of all these unfortunate circumstances that the, the, the industry pretty much all but collapsed.
0: Yeah, and so when Britain left the subcontinent in 1947, independent India and Pakistan, which were created at that point, both took control uh, or territories in the Kashmiri region with the result that today— Both countries now proudly claim Kashmiri shawls as part of their heritage. And I was actually thrilled to learn that the incredible hand craftsmanship, artistry, and skill of the Kashmiri weaver is still alive and well today. In her essay, The Fashion Diplomacy and Trade of Kashmir Shawls, Conversation with Shawl Artisans, Designs, and Collectors, published in 2016, author Dever Emmett introduces readers to several weavers carrying on the Connie tradition of their families and forefathers. Quote, but while from my earlier research, I found many textile artisans feared that their craft would be lost due to diminished markets and lack of interest from their educated children, Emmett writes, the handcrafted shawl industry in cashmere continues to thrive. The industry there is supported both by government programming and private commissions, so people still really appreciate and want to support this craft.
1: Yeah, and in her essay, Deborah also introduces us to Manir and his friend Hamid, who— weave together side by side on a loom in Munir's house, and also to Raja, who left school in the 1990s um, due to military unrest in Kashmir, to follow in the footsteps of his father and grandfather in learning this particular craft of weaving. And what a legacy these young men are carrying forward into 21st century and beyond, you know, the legacy of Kashmir, not with a C, but with a K. Yep,
0: and that does it for us today. Thanks for listening, and please, please consider potential points of cultural appropriation in your own selection of wardrobe next time you get dressed. Ask yourself, does this item of clothing appropriate or appreciate the culture it represents? Or better yet, to avoid any question, why not buy directly from Indigenous
1: designers? Remember, we love hearing from you. So if you would like to write to us, you can do so at dress at iheartmedia.com. And also, please be sure and check out our Instagram at dress underscore podcast, where you'll find images to accompany each week's episodes. Special thank you, as always, to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes this show possible each and every week.
0: More dress coming your way on Thursday.